of 21 years, I got in zero trouble. Never got in trouble when I was in there. I stayed disciplinary free the whole 21 years, which is almost impossible. When I went to the Board of Parole hearings, they couldn't believe it. They asked a lot of questions behind that, because I had to go to board to get parole. Welcome to Afterlife, Season 2 of Gray Area. I'm Julie Reynolds Martinez. This entire season, we're following Gilbert Bayo, a man in prison who finds a new life after a life sentence. Gilbert has been locked up for more than 20 years now, serving a 24 years to life sentence, which means he might eventually get a chance to come home. But when he went to prison in the 1990s, almost no one with a life sentence was actually granted parole. But society and politics have changed. More lifers are going home, and Gilbert's desperately hoping he'll be part of that trend. If you're new to Gilbert's story, be sure to go back and listen to the previous six episodes of Afterlife. In our last episode, we learned some of the disturbing truth about the L.A. Sheriff's deputy who shot and killed Gilbert's younger brother. Put your purse down. Put your camera down. I don't want to put my camera down. I'm scared. Decedent Manuel Borrego is but one of many victims of a disturbing trend featuring unarmed citizens shot dead by sheriff deputies employed by the County of Los Angeles. Rather than take measures to address the staggering epidemic of such shootings, local authorities have fomented a culture pursuant to which individual deputies and their supervisors look the other way when such shootings take place and when deputies involved fabricate stories that purport to justify the shootings. That's from a wrongful death lawsuit that Gilbert's mother Diana filed in January 2019. 10 months after Gilbert's brother Manny was killed by Sheriff's deputy Bradley Dietz. She and her attorneys could not have known then that three months earlier, Dietz was also involved in a major FBI and DEA conspiracy case, the cannabis warehouse heist we talked about in episode 6. Knowing that Dietz had lied to an LAPD officer to enable another deputy's crimes might have given those phrases about looking the other way and fabricating stories more weight. Within months, though, Diana's case against Dietz in L.A. County was quickly dismissed by Judge Manuel Real. He said the shooting did not rise to a level that, quote, shocks the conscience. Meanwhile, the federal criminal case against Dietz's fellow Temple Station deputy, Mark Antrim, was moving fast. He entered a guilty plea just a few months after his arrest. L.A. County Sheriff's deputy has been sentenced to seven years in federal prison for orchestrating a fake drug raid back in October of 2018. Antrim admitted taking part in a conspiracy to, quote, oppress threaten, or intimidate the warehouse workers, and he admitted he threatened use of a dangerous weapon. One of his victims, a watchman at the warehouse, also sued the sheriff's department and L.A. County, but his case, too, was quickly tossed out by the court. Antrim's sentence was much less than the original life sentence he faced because he testified against Christopher Myung Kim, a former employee of the cannabis company who, like Dietz, was not physically present at the robbery. Because of Antrim's testimony, Kim got the longest sentence in the case, 14 years in federal prison. Dietz wasn't arrested or even fired from his job. 
even though he helps the other seven suspects go forward with false arrests and armed robbery. But we'll learn more about that in a future episode. Gilbert has spent months grieving his brother's death, feeling helpless to comfort his family from behind the walls. But now he has to steel himself to face the parole board for the first time, many years before he ever imagined. In the beginning, when I first got there, they told me, you got life, lifers don't get out, and they weren't. There was no lifers going home. They were like, why are you wasting your time? Like, they don't, they don't let us out, man. Once they give you life, it's over. I'm not gonna lie, some days I was like, you know what, man, I just, why am I doing all this shit? Mm-hmm. Just chill, man. Kick it on the bed, go to the yard, act a fool, you know? Yeah. I know how to act like a fool. I've been a fool since I was 13. Like, that's, that comes easy for me. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was a, that's the easy way out. But over two decades, Gilbert had matured and he'd put in the work. And so had the legislators shaping the lives of youthful offenders in California. The reason is our laws were finally catching up to the data that brain scientists and even car rental companies have recognized for years. This is Dr. Abigail Baird, a psychology professor at Vassar College. At 21, do we finally say, okay, you are a full-fledged adult? We don't, because there's one thing you still can't do at 21 that a lot of 22, 23-year-olds want to do. Rent a car. We don't let that happen until 25. And I'll tell you why. Because insurance companies have a lot more information than scientists. (laughs) It's true. And money is the bottom line. They have thousands and thousands of data points, and accidents drop precipitously after the age of 25. And isn't it funny that after the age of 25, when you look at studies of endocrine function and brain maturation, that things actually kind of level out after that. New technology, like MRIs, has finally enabled brain scientists to visualize what they'd long suspected. Here are two researchers, Dr. Elizabeth Kaufman of UC Irvine and Professor Sarah Jane Blakemore of Cambridge University. Recent advances in neuroscience have shown that the brain is continuing to develop up until the age of 25. And that's particularly in the area of the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for impulse control, planning, future orientation. Given that this is the last part of the brain to develop, it's not surprising that kids are more impulsive, don't think through their actions. We know that adolescents have a tendency to take risks. They take more risks than children or adults, and they are particularly prone to taking risks when they're with their friends. Dr. Baird's research even found that young people's decision-making process is more focused on their friends' opinions of them than actual danger. There's a very strong, what I like to call, Haley effect in this clip. Good idea, bad idea, to go swimming with sharks. Well, it sort of depends on if you have like a buddy you're swimming with, uh, um, sort of both, because it could be fun, but you could get hurt too. Um, it could be a bad idea if you were doing it alone, but it could be like a good idea because it would be a whole new experience if you had like someone guiding you and you really knew how to deal with sharks. Well, I kind of agree with Haley that it it's, would be a bad idea if you were alone, but I've heard like read magazine stories and stuff of people who have got hurt by sharks, so it kind of scares me a little bit, but it could be a kind of an interesting experience. I think it'd be kind of cool swimming with sharks, just it depends like 
if they like hurt you or whatever, like it'd be a bad idea. If you're like by yourself, like I agree with Haley. That's her answer. Her answer is I agree with Haley. Because in Vermont, where this was done, what great whites are not a problem at present. But Haley is. So Haley gets a little more of the frontal lobe than the great white shark. All kinds of research shows they're very knowledgeable about what's safe and what's not safe. It's not an issue of knowledge. It's an issue of not feeling, not having that gut instinct that is automatic in you as an adult. They don't have it yet. In 2013, California started changing its approach to younger people who commit serious crimes. Legislators passed a bill that gave prisoners who committed their crime before age 18 a special youth offender parole hearing. Even if they were sentenced to life without parole, they could get a hearing after 25 years to try to demonstrate that they had matured and changed, and they could see the board after 15 years for certain crimes. In 2016, the maximum age at the time of the crime was raised to under 23. Then in 2017, as scientists' findings became more widely accepted, the California legislature voted on a controversial bill that would raise that age limit all the way up to 25 years old. The state Senate needed 21 votes to pass it. The debate on the floor was fierce. I'm presenting AB 1308 that will align public policy with scientific research. See, I must reinforce that this bill is not a free ticket for release. But there was plenty of outspoken opposition. Shall it be then 28 next year? How high do we go? How much easier on the criminal will this institution go? Let them all out. <sighs> if we're going to be policymakers and make decisions about what's in the best interest of California, then I suggest we all check our bias at the door. I am neither soft on crime. I respect and believe in the role of law enforcement. And I also believe that race, class, and inherent implicit and explicit bias has a direct effect on the judicial system. And to deny that fact is to suggest that you are living in a past era it would never occur to me to stand here and to suggest that a group of people, when I don't know all of their circumstances, are inherently bad and beyond worth. And the final vote? Eyes 22, nose 14, the measure passes. The bill went into effect in 2018. Gilbert was 25 when he committed his crime, and since it wasn't murder, he was suddenly eligible for a parole hearing after 15 years in prison. He'd passed that 15-year mark five years earlier. But he still had to wait, because hundreds of other cases were also eligible. It would take a full year before the board could see him. It's early 2019, and Gilbert finally has a hearing date. The new law means that in addition to Gilbert getting an earlier hearing, the parole commissioners must seriously consider the so-called hallmarks of youth, that underdeveloped prefrontal cortex, when they decide if he's ready to rejoin society. 
They are also required to base their decision not solely on the seriousness of his crime, but whether Gilbert is likely to present a public safety risk today. In the end, I scored the lowest that they can give me. It was good. Low is good. I was deemed a lower risk of committing violence than the average person in society. That means the average person was more likely to commit violence than I was today. I have these portfolios, all these certificates. I'm writing letters to programs. I'm meeting counselors, probation officers. I'm giving awards by Assemblywoman Nicole Parra. ABC News is in there doing reports about the work that we're doing. I'm getting interviewed, getting published in these newspapers. But the most important thing is that it can't just be something on paper. They see thousands of people a year. Every lie that you could think of, every scheme has been played. Everything looks to be in Gilbert's favor, but he also knows it's extremely rare for someone to get approved for parole, especially the first time up. Gilbert's anxiety is through the roof because of one tough-on-crime law still on the books called Marcy's Law. If he's turned down now, the delay before his next parole hearing could be at least a year or as long as 10 years. When he finally faces the parole board, Gilbert is nervous. He understands that it's such a long shot. He also knows he just has to be himself. So I just went in there and I was honest. This is my role. This is what I did. I think these environmental factors had some influence, but ultimately it was my decision to make at those different junctures in my life. A lot of them, I made the wrong decision. And I like to believe that that has a lot to do with why I'm here today. This is how I addressed it. I walked out for the deliberation, for them to make a decision. I was talking to my lawyer in the holding tank. Within five minutes, the uh, correctional officer, the board members had him go in there and bring me back. Usually they go over discrepancies that they may have found in what's actually on your file and what you said during that hearing. So when they bring me back, it, it actually kind of scared me a little bit. I was like, man, they're not going to let me go today. You know, this is 21 years in. So I sat down and like immediately they told me that they had good news and that they found me suitable. They wanted me to know that right away. It was unbelievable news. Gilbert was one of the rare ones, a man who was approved for parole his very first time. But his ordeal wasn't over. This still wasn't a guarantee he'd get to go home. The governor had four months to decide if he agreed with this decision by the board. If he didn't, he could send it back for another round. And after a governor's rejection, the commissioners often changed their minds. Suitable for parole doesn't mean you're going home. It just means that we no longer find you a threat. You can go back to society But the governor has the last word So this is gonna go to the governor's desk and either he signs it you go home Or he doesn't sign it. It sits on his desk 120 days Being a student of politics and history everybody prior to Jerry Brown ran as governor saying, I will not let a lifer go home while I'm in office. 
All the way from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, and to the 2000s was nobody went home. But Jerry Brown, the governor who began letting more lifers than ever go home, was no longer in office. His successor was Gavin Newsom, a man who many believe has aspirations for higher office. And in politics, regardless of party, that often translates as tough on crime. The governor just came into office, four months in office. We don't know what he's going to do. Is he going to continue with... Jerry Brown started, or is he gonna reverse role? In the end, Newsom agreed to let the board's decision stand. But now Gilbert has more waiting to do to find out exactly when he's going home. The process usually takes a few months, and prisoners aren't told the date until a couple of weeks before it happens. Gilbert still couldn't believe he was really going to be set free. He called me several times in the fall of 2019, counting the days since he was given final approval for his release. So it's been 61 days as of today, September 29th. I'm looking hopefully around 90 days. My friends that have left, one left at 87 days. The second guy left at the 94th day, and on Friday, another one of my friends left after 101 days. So, it's going by slow compared to the 21 years that I've been in here, since I got found suitable. The first couple weeks, it was really hard to stay asleep all night, thinking about what's um, like I, I prepared myself as, as far as changing my life and that part I feel comfortable with. The thing is I feel a lot of anxiety because I was only 25 years old when I committed the, my crime and now I'm 46 so my daughter was only two years old now she's 23 since I've been in here. My brother was uh, murdered last year. I've lost other family members. You know, my mom's a lot older, my grandma's a lot older, so all those things been on my mind. How is that gonna be? How am I gonna be around them now that I'm a different person? The other part now is just more like, it lately, it's been like, how am I gonna sleep at night? Because <laughs> they sell these little fans in the, in the packages, right? And they're pretty loud. They drown out a lot of sound. And lately I've been thinking, how am I going to sleep outside of prison where I don't have that fan? Like, am I going to be able to sleep in a regular, normal <laughs> mattress? Because the mattresses in here are so, they're so small. And like I said, the noise. So, mm. so those are kind of like some of the things that... This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. It's weird that those would be the things that like, I've been thinking about. It seems so small no, compared to the big things you could be worrying about, right? Been like an ongoing, kind of like a daydream of mine, but walking out the gate, like, what am what am I gonna see? Who's gonna walk me out? Like, what what exactly does it look like? And on time, it was it was more of a dream. Like, man, I hope I could get there one day. I hope I could get there. And now. It's about to happen. 
and are they gonna just open the fence? Like, is the officer gonna just like say, okay, you're free? Like, like there's no more supervision. Like, go ahead. Cause everywhere in here, they're opening the door or they're opening the gate or they're opening something with a key, and then I'm getting either locked on one end of it or the other side of it. So that constant has been going on for 21 years, and now it's like they're gonna open it up and just and let me go. Like, like there's something, a part of me that feels like there's something wrong. I'm not supposed to be right here. My mom, my grandmother, and my daughter, they want to come and pick me up. Just when I, I imagine myself walking towards them, I get super emotional. I just feel this overwhelming, like super, super joy and happiness. But also there's some like pain there because I feel guilty for leaving them. I feel guilty for leaving my daughter and not being there for my grandma in her older age and the struggles my mom has been through with my brother and other issues there were. I could have been supportive for them and now they're standing right in front of me. Now that I've gotten older, I'm a lot more emotional. Like it's real easy for me to just start crying. I was like, and I might have just start crying and just not be able to stop. Day I decided to take a walk from the house and go to the beach and man I just sat down under a big old tree that hangs right over a cliff. I'm looking out at the ocean, I can see sailboats and the water and all the colors. It's just it's overwhelming, beautiful. I can't believe that I, all them years being in there, and because it's not like I've never seen the ocean or the sky. I don't know what color a cloud is or what grass is, but it's different when, when you live in there. And just coming in here and sitting at this bench and taking it in, it, it just blows my mind. Gilbert was released on Thanksgiving Day. He and Rebecca agreed she would stay in Texas so that Gilbert could spend time with Marlena, his mother, and other close relatives. His family picked him up in the prison's parking lot and were allowed to spend a couple days with him while he settled into a supervised six-month transition program at a halfway house in the nearby beach town of Santa Cruz, California. The hours in the halfway house dining room with his daughter, mother, siblings, and the grandmother he hadn't seen in two decades passed in a blur. <laughs> they have like little fireworks. They have I like that pig. The little pig. That one. A few days later, Gilbert's family has gone home, and I'm sitting with him in a parole office in Salinas, California. He's still in a kind of state of shock. We've been waiting how many hours here at parole? Since <laughs> nine in the morning and it's about to be one o'clock right now. When I left the prison, the way you're treated, it's waiting, it's the way you're spoken to, you're less than, you're a nobody. And I was even told, you won't ever have to write your CDC number, you're not that number. 
And today we show up, what's been five days now? And me and Julie been sitting here the whole time and it's like, just sit down. And I ask, can I use the restroom? Not right now. And then, what's your CDC number? And it's like being back in prison. It's the same thing. It's the same process. And I don't say this as like a complaint. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, good luck. All right. <laughs> I think Thank we're you. gonna Take shut care. the place down. <laughs> yeah. Don't leave. Take care. That's the trick. I think they try sometimes tricky too and test you. See if you leave, huh? Yeah. I don't know. All right. See you later. <laughs> I'm not saying this as a complaint because I'm grateful that I'm free, and I'm, I'm I'm happy to be out. I'd rather wait in this office than wait in any of the offices in prison. But it's, this is another reminder that you're not 100% free because there's still somebody watching over you. Maybe not a guard in a, in a guard tower, maybe not the officer that comes around during count, makes you stand up off the bed and make sure you're awake and alive. Maybe it's not to that degree, but there's still an element of that in my life. And I, I guess this is my first experience of revisiting what I thought I walked away from because I didn't expect this. Mm -hmm. I, I thought we were going to walk in, I see him, sign his papers, whatever, and, and walk out and do this maybe once a month. Mm -hmm. But I, I was in for a, a rude awakening. <laughs> I thought I closed that chapter in my book, in my life. And here I am, I'm turning the chapter and there's the, the prior chapters showing up. Mm -hmm. I knew that somewhere in the universe, my decision-making would balance itself out because growing up, all those opportunities to make the right decision, most of the time, I made the wrong decision. All right, come on through. Did you fill out that form? Yes, sir. All right. Let me get this form. Go see my process. <laughs> all right. Meet my process. No, I'm surprised you're not process yet. It's That's a full moon. It, you, you gotta see it's right behind the clouds. It, it, you should see how it's it's reflecting all of this different light. The smells, you know, I can smell the water. The air is is so crisp, and I can smell the the wet ground. You know, it's been raining for a couple weeks at least since I've been out. The ground's really wet, and it draws all these different these different smells out of the ground, and the grass, and the, and the plants. And I can smell everything, but I'm just amazed, you know, sitting right here and watching the clouds and just come in and go over and drift off so far into the ocean, like just the vastness of how big everything is. In our next episode, Gilbert starts to discover the outside world again. You can feel his joy at reuniting with his fiance, Rebecca, but there are still big challenges, from struggling with technology to learning what society expects of him. This episode was co-produced by Gilbert Bale and Mara J. Reynolds, who also read the excerpts from Diana's lawsuit. You can check out all our episodes and show notes 
at grayareapodcast.com, and that's gray with an A. And don't forget to try Season 1, where you'll hear six different stories of justice and redemption. And if you like this show, please leave a review and rating on Apple Music or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us reach more people. This podcast was made possible with support from California Humanities, a nonprofit partner of the National Endowment for the Humanities. Visit www.calhume.org. The music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions, Quetzal, Lobo Loco, and Nuisance. Thanks again to all the amazing artists at the Free Music Archive. Details are on our website. For Gray Area, this is Julie Reynolds Martinez, and this is Season 2, Afterlife. <laughs>